Hey there, this is Pastor John Ware, lead pastor of Lifehouse Newport News, a church that exists to help all people experience life change through Christ. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. We hope it inspires you and gives you perspective to see how God is moving in your life. Now let's get to today's episode. All right, so we are in part three today. The Bible is and... The past couple weeks, we've talked, about, uh, we've talked about how the Bible is unrivaled and how the Bible is confusing. But today, uh, and really the goal of this series was to help you start, renew, or strengthen your, your relationship with the Bible. Because frankly, and I've said this the past couple weeks, there is no other book like the Bible. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time and it's not even close. It has sold five times more than any other book. It is the most widely translated book of all time, being translated into almost 3,000 languages. More song lyrics and books have been written about the Bible than any other book. It is the most stolen book as well, but also too, no book has been more hated, loved, outlawed, abused, misinterpreted, misconstrued, referred to, honored to, or dishonored. But I've said this the past few weeks as well. When you have a book that is a book of 66 books written by 44 different authors, some being statesmen, farmers, shepherds, peasants, musicians, poets, kings, and even tax collectors over a period of 1,500 years written from 13 different countries on three continents from different cultural and socio-political environments in three different languages that include different communication types such as narrative history, genealogies, chronicles, laws, poetry, proverbs, prophetic oracles, riddles, drama, biographical sketches, parables, letters, sermons, and apocalyptic literature. I understand how you can deduct that the Bible is either a miracle of God or the insanity of man. And though the Bible is unrivaled, it can be confusing. It can also be misunderstood. And that's what we're going to talk about today, how the Bible is misunderstood. I don't know if you have seen this play out personally, but when you get in relationships, it's easy for things to be misunderstood. I've been married 11 years now. And I can, and, and personally, I can tell you how many times in those 11 years, Kristen and I, we have had misunderstandings. Why? Because we're different. We've got different past experiences, different personalities. We're, We're different. But here's the thing. In our relationship, we have had many, many misunderstandings. And I'm sure you have as well in so many different relationships, friendships, marriages, sports teams, Hobbies. When you get in relationship, it's easy for there to be misunderstandings. And what I have seen is that people, when it comes to having, to when it comes to having a relationship with the Bible, misunderstandings abound. And this can be for so many different different reasons. But let me highlight a couple of them really quick. Social media, right? You've got someone, they share something about God or they share something about the, the Bible. And there's so many different, different, there's so many different articles out, out there that, that it's so, it's so easy for us with the plethora of data and the plethora of information out there to, 
easily misunderstand the Bible. But, but the thing is, though, you've probably also had friends that have had bad experiences with the Bible, church, or Jesus. And they try to tell you their experiences. The Bible says this, and the Bible says that. And what they're actually doing is telling you a secondhand account of what they've seen, heard, or read from somebody else. And they try to, to paint the Bible, the church, and, and Jesus with this broad brush that puts, that puts all Christians from, from all time in the same lane. And what you can do is, is that can actually cause misunderstandings, but also to bad teaching, right? Un unfortunately, all the truth is this. In the church, there was so much bad teaching about the Bible that causes there to be so many misunderstandings. And the thing is, right, I'm not saying that we always teach 100% right what God's word says, but let me tell you this. We try our hardest to ensure that what we speak and what we say from from this book isn't what we want it to say, but it is what God's word is trying to say. And let me tell you this, the Bible says this, that one day those who teach God's word, they will stand before God and be judged more strictly. That honestly, when I stand before God, and what James 3.1 says, it says this, that not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And y'all, I take that very serious, knowing that one day I will stand before God. Everybody that comes and preaches to you will one day stand before God and give an account and be judged for how we taught God's word. And that is why I am just, just honored that you would take time, that you would carve out space to, to hear God's word preached. And let me tell you this, we take it seriously and we try to tell you unapologetically, unfiltered what God's word says. But regardless today, I want to, to talk about today and address what I have seen as the top three misunderstandings about the Bible. First off, uh, it's easy to misunderstand the Bible to just be a book full of rules. I mean, how many times have you thought this? This book God is the big fuddy-dud. He's the big party pooper. He's the one that all he wants to do is just drop a book full of stuff you can't do, right? This book is just a book full of do's and don'ts and thou shalt's and thou shalt not. And I don't know, possibly you think because, you know, you are, you are brand new with the Bible or possibly you haven't started a relationship with this book, that that is the way you see this book. And let me tell you this, that could be no, that, that could be any further from the truth than seeing this book as just being a book of rules. Now, however, though, it's not a book of, of rules, but at the same time, it, it, it is a book with rules. And honestly, I think that word rules is a bad word. What the Bible does have is boundaries. Right? It, it does have boundaries. The book is, the Bible is a book with boundaries in it from a loving God. But the truth is this, right? Any healthy and, and, and good relationship has got boundaries in it. All right? Think about it. When I pledged my, my life to be with, with Kristen, I was essentially committing to her and telling her, there are going to be things that I'm going to do with you that I'm not going to do with anyone else. 
emotionally, physically, psychologically, sexually, like relationally, there are things that I am committing to you and to protect the relationship that Kristen and I have, we put into place boundaries to protect the intimacy and the relationship that we want to cultivate and have. Any good relationship has got boundaries in, in place. And, when, and if the point of the Bible is to cultivate and be in relationship with God, there has got to be boundaries there. But let me tell you this, what Satan will do, one of the greatest tools of Satan is he will try to get you to think that all God wants to do is hold you back from the freedom that you deserve and from the freedom that you desire. We can even see this in the Genesis story, in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, 16, we, we actually see how God created Adam, Eve, and told them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So he was not holding them back. He said, you are free to eat from any tree within the garden, but there is one that is off limits, that has boundaries. The, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said, that is the one tree that is sacred, holy, stay away from it. But the thing is, he said, hey, yo, you all, like, all this other stuff, like, y'all got free reign. And what did Satan come and do and try to tempt Adam and Eve with? The one thing that God said was off limits. The one thing that God said, hey, that's mine, stay off of it. Satan tried to get into Adam and Eve's mind and tell them this. One of the three lies that, that Satan told him was, hey, God's trying to hold something back from you. But no, God, God you know, he said, God said to eat from any tree. And I think what that, what that story does is that exposes the desire in people's hearts the, the thing is, right, we desire freedom. And actually what, what God and what Jesus said was, is that we are meant for freedom. But the truth is, our idea of what freedom is and what God's idea of freedom is are completely different, right? As people, we think freedom is this, no limits, no limitations, right? Just kind of do, you know, we just, we just want to do whatever we feel. We think that freedom is giving is giving into and satisfying every compulsion our body throws at us. Food, yep. Sex, yep. Anger, yep. Greed, yep. But, th but the thing is, haven't we seen in our culture that a life lived by obeying every compulsion that it throws at us, our flawed, broken selves, is not actually freedom. It actually leads to slavery. Whenever we obey, you know, whatever our body feels, it doesn't lead to, to a life of freedom. It actually leads to a life of slavery. Let me tell you this, right? We think freedom in our culture is us, God, and creation. Like, like we actually think that true freedom for us is being over God. But let me tell you what, what the culture actually uh, you know, what the culture is right now and show you what's actually happened. You have got creation, man, and God. Where honestly, we have got people that are being ruled and governed by creation. Sex, alcohol, drugs, greed, anger. And we have people that desire freedom 
but, but are enslaved to what their compulsions and feelings are, and they are enslaved. But let me tell you what God's idea of freedom originally was and is now. It says God's idea of freedom is and was seen in Genesis as God setting up the original created order. God, man, creation. God ruling, man in submission and ruling over creation. But now because of sin, like I said, it's creation, man, God. And God's idea of freedom is best. You submit to him he gives you the grace to rule over and steward, the, and steward the created things for your good and for God's glory. What kind of freedom do you desire and what kind of freedom do you even have right now? What, what is your personal order? Is it God, you, and creation? Or is it you, God, Creation, examine your, your, yourself and ask, are you really living in the freedom that God wants for your life? But at the same time, freedom is not just obeying the boundaries that God puts into place. Because honestly, what you see in scripture is this. You can obey all of God's laws and still not be in relationship with him. Why? Because you can do the right things for the wrong, for the wrong reasons. There, there is a parable in the Bible, which I'm sure you've probably heard, the parable of the prodigal son. And actually, it's not a parable of just the prodigal son. It's a, it, it is a parable of two sons. But we typically focus on the prodigal son, right? Let me break it down, down for you, right? You, you've, you've got a father that has two sons. And one son essentially says, I'm going to go live it up. I'm tired of being in my dad's house. I'm going to go live it up. So, so basically, he goes out, sleeps sleeps with hookers, he goes out and spends all of his inheritance and just lives buck wild crazy and realizes one day, it actually says he came to his senses and said, what am I doing? Why am I, why am I living this way? And then he, he went back home and he said, Father, I have sinned, accept me into your home. And the father was excited because, because the father was saddened that the son had left and went off. And you see the son come back and the father is excited. He threw a party for him. He's, I mean, just a feast, a party going on. But then you've got, and this is not mentioned many times with this story, you had the other son, the older son that was at home with his father, doing what he should have been doing, doing all the good things his father wanted him to do. But, but at the same time, the older son, whenever he saw that younger brother come home and how the father treated him and how the father loved him, the true motive of what the older son had came out. He started saying things like, how are you gonna honor this younger brother? Like, you're gonna give him some of my inheritance? And then, and then he said this to his father. He said, all of these years I have been slaving for you and you never even gave me one party. And what he exposed there was his heart. He, he was doing this. He was in the father's house, but he didn't have the father's heart. He was doing the good things not to be in relationship with his father, but he was doing the good things just to get good things from his father. He didn't have the right heart, the right motive. And, and what his father was like, yo, we should be happy that his, the, your brother, that my son has come home. 
And really, I think the point of the story is this. We can even do the right things that God requires. We can obey the boundaries, but miss being in relationship with him because we think that through obeying those boundaries, God loves us more, or we think that obeying those boundaries makes us right with God. When honestly, Scripture tells us, tells us this. It is Jesus' good work that puts us, as we put our faith and trust in him, that puts us in right relationship with him. And the good we do is a direct result of and because of the good work that Jesus did in our place and for our sin. Here's the thing, right? God puts boundaries in place to protect us out of love. And we obey those boundaries not to be loved and received by him, but to instead be in relationship with him. Don't misunderstand the Bible to just be a big book of rules that is trying to keep you from what God has for you. The Bible is a book with boundaries in place to love and protect you like a father would do with his sons. Secondly, though, I think we can deeply misunderstand the Bible by, by thinking it is irrelevant and outdated, right? And I talked about this briefly, I'm not sure, last week or the week before, talking about how the The Bible is timeless and timely. The Bible did not just happen. The Bible happens. That whenever we see stories within Scripture, we'd say that is not just them. That is us. That whenever we see Peter in the Bible disowning Jesus, that wasn't just Peter doing it. That was us. Just, Just how many times have we done that? Whenever we see Scripture, it speaks to us right where we are because we can put ourselves in the stories and see ourselves within it. It's timeless and timely. It's not just some old, outdated book that was just written thousands of years back that we just kind of like, oh man, it's so old. And we can develop, as I said a couple weeks back as well, chronological snobbery and think just because the book's old, meaning it doesn't have relevance to right here and right now, which is completely false. The Bible is as relevant now as it has ever been. The Bible, and let me tell you why, because people will always want to know where they came from, why they're on this planet, what is right and wrong, and where they're going. That will never leave, no matter how scientifically advanced we are, no matter how technologically advanced we are, people will always, deep down in their mind, spirit, and soul, they will want to know why they're on this planet, where they're going, why, why they're even here, and where they came from. And the Bible calls dibs on that. But also, too, in our current cultural moment that, that we're in, where it seems like everything that we thought was so sure and so secure and so firm and so found, foundational, all of that stuff has been shaken. Our economy is shaken. Our relationships have been shaken. Your retirement has probably been shaken. Your normal flow of life has been shaken. Like everything that we thought was so sure to build a life on, this pandemic has revealed what we've been building on. It, it, it has exposed, and Jesus, he told this parable, right? It's, it, it's, it's called the parable of two builders where Jesus goes into and starts, uh, you, know, you know, explaining about two builders, one that built his house on sand and one that built his house on rock. And what I want to actually do is, is, is read that to you right now. It's in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, and I'm going to read to you from the message version. It says this here. It says, these words I, and I being Jesus, he says, these words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. 
homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. And if you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach when a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. I don't believe if there is anything that, that is more relevant and pertinent for us to listen to, hear, and, and heed right now. It is these words that Jesus is saying to us right now. Saying, what have you been? What are you building your life on? And Jesus says, look, my words, God's words, are, they are firm and foundational and unshakable. It is, it, it is an unshakable foundation for you to build your life on. But let's just be honest, what we've done in this country is we've liked to view Jesus, church, and the Bible as just as Jesus said here, incidental add-ons incidental add-ons that we kind of like to take a little bit of Jesus and just throw them into our like already established life and just say, hey, Jesus, give me a little bit of good luck. Jesus, give me a little bit of good charms. You know, yeah, Jesus. When honestly, what we've seen with this pandemic is so many Christ followers are shaken to the core. But the thing is, Jesus promised, see, here's the thing, right? Jesus doesn't say you'll, you'll never have storms. He, he doesn't promise that. He says this. He says, look, like, like when the storms came, when the tornado hits, when the hurricane hits, if you build your life and build, your, and, and build who you are on me and my words, you might get shaken, but you won't be destroyed. You might get hurt, but, but you won't die, right? And that is what I think we've got to be seeing, viewing, and examining during this time. What has this pandemic revealed about the foundation that you have been building on? Here's, here's the truth. Storms reveal what you're building on. Maybe this pandemic is actually God's blessing in disguise to you in your life if you see it and view it correctly. Why? Because it will show and it will expose the shaky, limited, temporary foundation that you've been building your life on. You've been building your marriage on. You have been building your walk with God on. And possibly this pandemic could be the grace. It's God saying, hey, see, look, look, you, you've got some, some cracks. You need to stop treating my words as just simply additions to your life and make some switches and start building it on me. I can't tell you how thankful I am and how, and how relieving it is that I can be reminded that the craziness in our world does not surprise God, therefore it should not surprise us. Let me just read you a quick portion of scripture in 2 Timothy 3 and tell me if this does not read the world that we're in now. This is, this is 2 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2 or 3. I'm not sure. It'll be on the, the, the screen. The production team, they'll get it right. It says, don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanderous, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to lust, and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals. 
That was written almost 2,000 years ago. I mean, I'm just reading this stuff and I'm like, thank you, God, that you know what's going on. Thank you, God, that this stuff doesn't, it doesn't surprise you. But also, too, I'm thankful that during, the, the, during this time in this shaky world, we can have an unshakable hope, unshakable words spoken by the God of heaven and earth. Hebrews 13, 5 says that God will never leave us or forsake us. Romans, Romans 8, 28 says that God works all things for the good of those who love God and who have been called according to his his purpose. Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Hebrews 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's stable, unchanging word is what our unstable, ever-changing world needs, and it's what your soul is longing for at this very moment is, a sh- is an unshakable, unmoving foundation that even though the storms may come and the storms will come. You can build your life on the eternal word of God. Don't misunderstand the Bible to be, uh, it was an old book. No, the Bible is more relevant to your life, my life, our life right now than ever. And you need to build, renew, or strengthen your relationship with it today. But thirdly, lastly, the Bible can be misunderstood as a book of hate. You might be like, really, John? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And let me tell you why. You've probably seen news, social media, whatever. You've got people out there holding up signs that just say the most hateful things. And they're from churches, uh, what's that one name? Westboro Baptist, where they go out and they hold up signs that all it does is spew hate and they claim this hate is in the name of God. And let me tell you what the unfortunate thing is. We get clumped into that. We get, we get clumped into that. We get clumped into being people because you've got a few bad apples, a few people taking the, the good news and turning it into bad news that take us and, and, and actually view us and view Christians as being people and being the Bible as a book of hate. But also too, Richard Dawkins, right? A famous, uh, famous atheist. Some people would call him the Billy Graham of the atheist movement. Uh, he's, he is a famous scientist. He wrote the book, The God Delusion. He said this within that book. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A, vind- a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sada, man, some of these words, I, I can't even say, these, these are hard for stuttering people, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow. The, that's what he deducts when he reads a part of the Bible. But let me tell you, tell you this, that he is not the only one. But here's the thing, I believe that is a complete misunderstanding of what this book says. And you know what, I bet you have friends and family or co-workers that would probably agree with what Richard Dawkins said. But I believe when you look into this book, you dive deep into it, not just see what you want to see, but actually see what this book says. You will see that there is nothing 
nothing more that God loves, nothing more that God loves than people. He died for people, all people, all people. And everyone say all, all. Say, say all people are created in God's image. You have never ever laid eyes on a human being that is not desperately loved by God. And because people are made in his image, they have intrinsic value and worth in any idea, any thought pattern, system, or way of living that puts somebody else as a second-class citizen or not fully human is a sin and should have no place within the church or the people that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And that is why right now, I believe within our country, as racism and injustice has made its way to the forefront and center within our country, I believe that we need to be clear and affirm that racism and and injustice has no place in our country, in our city, or within our church. And that is why during this time, we personally and corporately as a church, we are standing with the black community, with with our black brothers and sisters, many who, who are and have been in pain. And we are doing what the Bible says to do in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, that says, if one part of the body, one part of the body of Christ suffers, every part suffers with it. And the thing is, we don't just suffer with them. We grieve with our black brothers and sisters and we shout and say to them, yes, your lives matter. Your black life matters. All black lives matter, right? And saying that is not being political. It's not being right or left. It's only affirming what, what this book says. It is only affirming the fact of they're made in the image of God and deserve the same value, the same worth as everyone. It's only affirming the value that God has placed on them. And here's why some people with kind hearts, they'll say, John, you know what? All lives matter. And you know what? We believe that, right? It's like, yes. And, and you know what? Anyone that has a good conscience, a good mind will affirm the fact of all lives matter matter. But at the same time, we have a part within our community, within our country that doesn't feel or see that. So that is why we want to affirm them and tell them, yes, your life matters. Black lives matter. We see you. We're with you. We stand with you. And we want to stand with you to see you and your kids have every right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that every other person in this country has. And what I would encourage those of you right now watching, you know, who are white, all of my white brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, especially if you, if you are a Christ follower, to suffer with those who are suffering and to affirm our black brothers and sisters' value and worth. And instead of just projecting stats and telling them why they should feel a certain way. And, and, and it's like, no, let's, let's, come, let's come beside them and suffer with them, affirm their value. And through that, be a leader in unity and reconciliation and bearing each other's burdens and ultimately showing the world who God is and what God's like. Because y'all, it's, the racial reconciliation is gonna begin with the church. It's got to. Why? Because we serve a God who reconciled us to himself, who reconciled us, who the two became one. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that we are then ministers of reconciliation. 
So y'all, this is our calling. This is who God has placed us and called us on this earth to be is reconcilers. The church began as a diverse, unified movement. You can see Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit fell, Pentecost came, and it said, you know, you know, different nations, different tongues, and the church will conclude as a diverse, unified movement. And what I'm challenging us to do as Lifehouse, individually and corporately, is to, within the time of the church beginning and, and the time of, of the church concluding, is to let's work and strive for to be in this, in, in this in-between season where God has placed us here on this planet at this specific time period. Let's work to see what heaven will eventually The thing is this, right? We, we see clearly the heart of God for people in Jesus Christ. A famous scripture, John 3, 16 through 17 says this, this, for God so loved, not God so hated, God so loved the world that he gave. So you see that in God's very nature, he's a giver, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And 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 verse number 17 says this here. It says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 1 John 3, 16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Look, if you've ever experienced anything other than love from Christians or seen, or if, if you have been one of the unfortunate ones that have experienced anything other than love, from people that claim to follow the name of Jesus, I want to on their behalf say, I'm sorry. Because that is not the heart of Jesus, the heart of God or the heart of this book. But I'm here to tell you today and remind you today, God loves you and he's passionately in love for you and wants to be in relationship with you. He loves you. But also too, let me remind you, the main word that God is described at or is described as in the Bible is love, yes, but the biggest, most used word in scripture to describe God is the word holy. Holy. Holy simply means set apart, beyond us, above us, right? And what you can actually see as God being described as holy in scripture, you can actually see two, two encounters that people had, one in the Old Testament, Isaiah, and one in the New Testament, John. They both had an encounter with God and what they concluded, a common thread within those encounters was this, that they both said, holy, holy, holy. They both saw the angels gathered around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. About God's holiness, I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says this, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of of his glory. Here's the thing, it's God's love that opens the door for us to get to him, and it's his love that draws us to himself. And as we get closer to him, we become more like him, and that means we become more holy, therefore we become more like God. It's God's love that opens the door, that paves the way shown to us and done for us in Jesus Christ, that gives us the, the, the invitation from God to say, hey, come to me 
and I will make you like myself. Here's the thing, if your concept of God's love doesn't include growing in holiness, you've missed the point of God's love. You missed the point. So here's the thing, in closing, let me tell you this. The Bible is a book with boundaries born out of love. It is more relevant to your life than ever. It is not a book of hate, but of love. Do not misunderstand the purpose, calling, and point of this book is to show you who God is, what God's like. He's got boundaries with love, right? He wants to draw you to himself. It's relevant, and it's not a book of hate. It's a book of saying, I want you to know me and know my love. Thank you again for joining us on the LifeHouse Newport News Podcast. If you're ever in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love for you to join us at one of our live worship experiences at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. at the Regal Kiln Creek Movie Theaters. Until then, feel free to check us out at www.theaterchurchnn.com or on any social media platform. Thank you so much, and God bless.